So as long as it's fair, as long as it's voluntary, inequality is fine. Inequality is great. We want those who succeed to be more rewarded than those who destroy value. But in the sense of our current environment, we have really sinister inequality. If everybody, you know, if, if the water's flowing and everyone is benefiting, right? Everyone's cup is filled. Um, people are happy, right? They have better things to do than to line up outside of someone's house and threaten to chop their head off. You know, I, I don't think we should be setting up guillotines anywhere. And that's, that's why I love Bitcoin. It's the peaceful revolution, right? Um, but why do people want to set up these guillotines? Because they know the system isn't working. It started to make a lot of sense to me that if we fixed money, we fixed so many problems in society. And so as a technology person, I was like, what should I be working on that's more important than this? this is, there's nothing more important than this. Welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Today I have on Pierre Richard, who is a titan in the Bitcoin space. If you haven't heard of him yet, go over to Twitter and follow him because he does some really interesting stuff there. Recently, he brought up a concern with the Ethereum supply, which turned into this huge fiasco called uh, Supplygate. And uh, it was a lot of fun to watch from... Uh, afar and to engage in some conversation around it on twitter but other than that he he's just a really really interesting smart guy co-founder of the satoshi nakamoto institute um he's just got good content everywhere so i hope you enjoyed this conversation and we're recording welcome pierre hey alex happy to be here it's good to have you I'm really excited. I was actually, uh, I had another accountant on the podcast uh, a couple weeks ago and I referenced you and called you the uh, unofficial Bitcoin accountant. So (laughs) yeah, although I'm I'm technically not a CPA. So am I really an accountant? Yes. Past the exams. Uh, There are real accountants in the space though. They mostly yeah. just do tax work, though. Yeah. Well, um, for anybody that doesn't know who Pierre Richard is, you need to follow him on Twitter because he's probably one of the best uh, references for just good commentary on what's happening in the world. And uh, you're really good at stirring the pot, too, which I really appreciate. It can be entertaining sometimes, so you and uh, some others were kind of the uh, ones that started Supplygate recently, which was a really fun conversation that swept through uh, Twitter and elsewhere. But uh, yeah, so um, you have a background in Austrian economics. How did, how did you get into Austrian economics? Yeah, um, I was browsing Wikipedia and the featured article that day happened to be about anarcho-capitalism. And so I clicked on it because it sounded, you know, like an interesting topic, right? Uh, I was in high school. See, this was like the summer of my junior year in high school. Um, And I started reading about it and it uh, struck me as being like the most rational uh, explanation I've heard of how uh, society ought to function. 
And I'd kind of gotten a comparative analysis already just by living in France and then living in the United States and living in France again, um, of seeing how completely different economic systems could be. And, and frankly, that uh, there's just more wealth in the US than there is in, in France at this point. Um, and uh, it seemed to me that like the further we go out in having more market and less government that uh, the better off everyone's going to be. Um, and that anarcho-capitalism article, it, it must have linked to Mises.org at some point, either in a footnote or something. And I signed up for their newsletter. Uh, and so they had a, I think they still have a weekly newsletter. Um, but at the time, it was like my sole source of, um, you know, intelligent uh, libertarian opinions on things or uh, Austrian economics. Um, and that newsletter, it even, I mean, it talked about topics like global warming, right? And up until that point, I had only learned about these topics at public school. You know, I, I hadn't really had any kind of other source of information other than that. Uh, I love my parents, but they didn't teach me, you know, hey, global warming's a scam. Uh, although I think today they, they would agree with that. Um, and, you know, the, the I remember in, even in like fourth grade, maybe even sooner, getting the whole rainforest talk of, you know, hey, they're cutting down the rainforest, destroying the planet, and not really having any kind of ideas about why they might be uh, partly right, but mostly wrong, you know, uh, and that was uh, what the Mises um, newsletter, Mises.org newsletter had coming into my uh, email every week. And, and then all the way to like topics like minimum wage, right, where Oh, well, yeah, of course, minimum wage is a good idea, right? We should, we should give people more money, uh, especially when they're the least well off. And um, that to me was just like a no-brainer. And, and then I read this article, I think it was by Walter Block, where it was like, you know, taking it apart from an economic perspective of how this destroys the job market at the, you know, for people who are just getting started. Um, and that the way you increase wages is by better productivity. So that was the first time I'd ever heard, you know, that kind of uh, argument uh, um, because in school, they just, they only teach you one side. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, that, that to me, I had a moment where I was like, oh, um, all of what's taught in school is not always correct. They do teach us incorrect things in school sometimes. And that was, I remember like having lots of cognitive dissonance over that of like, well, why would they do that? You know, but uh, it comes down to politics, right? Sure, man. Stepping into the controversy right off the bat. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there definitely is a disconnect sometimes between what is taught in school and uh, you know, what, how things actually work. So talking about minimum wage, that's a big topic contentious topic um, that a lot of people don't understand uh, when they look at it because they hear an argument against minimum wage and they hear, uh, you know, poor people don't deserve to get protected against inflation or, you know, whatever. Um, but there's a lot of nuance to it. And uh, as I've been diving into this, I've been seeing that a lot of what is being talked about you know, like when you look at the classic Republican versus Democrat arguments is that they're both built on faulty uh, foundations. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, 
So yeah, I mean, it's as simple as this, you know, we have um, all of these uh, uh, judges that were appointed by Republicans who are, you know, constitutionalists and whatnot. Um, but they, they did not rule that the Federal Reserve is unconstitutional, even though I, you know, if you look at, uh, it should have been a constitutional amendment. It shouldn't have just been, you know, the Federal Reserve Act. Um, and so uh, it, it shows to me that th ultimately, like the state will, will optimize for size, right? They want to be as big as possible. And, uh, you know, we say, see with the, like the coronavirus thing as well. So it's bipartisan that on both sides, well, all they argue about is should we have more military or should we have more uh, social welfare? You know, that, that to me is the Republican Democrat divide is how do we divvy up this pie? And, and guess what? It, in practice, it gets divvied up 50-50, right? Because that's how they fall, you know, uh, uh, politically, uh, it, it's always like almost 50-50 and people are wondering who's going to win the next election. And the reason it's always 50-50, it's not because there's like a fundamental, you know, if you look at the, the population, everyone falls left or right, you know, 50-50. Um, it, it's part of the conditioning uh, that people get in public school or on Nickelodeon, frankly, Nickelodeon will not teach you about the Libertarian Party. Um, and it's, it's all so that they can maximize the size of the pie uh, without competing uh, factions trying to take pie from each other. Um, and it's, it's that way in, in a lot of countries, I think, but in the US, it's especially aggravated by, you know, the design of the system uh, from the get go. Yeah. Yeah, it is a, there's a lot of power um, going. I had a pretty contentious argument with my family yesterday about why I'm choosing not to vote um, this election. And they presented the argument that I could vote for a third party. And uh, um, I told them that it's much more productive for me to buy Bitcoin than to vote <laughs> because um I'd much rather render this system kind of powerless or limit their power by actively doing something productive than to go and waste my time casting a vote for somebody that's completely uh, shut out of the system, not given any fair news coverage. And, you know, it's, it was a fun, fun discussion, fun argument. So where do you stand on uh, our current political system? Um, in regards to what the next 10 years are going to look like with elections and, uh, and government actions? Yeah, so I, I think that, um, you know, the, it, it's a matter of corruption. So um, what has corrupted the United States is the fact that technology uh, enabled paper money to work well enough. Um, and, you know, through, through the prevention of counterfeiting with, you know, advances in paper technology, especially, you know, right. So um, without that, uh, I don't think paper money would last very long because uh, it ends up being counterfeited by even by the non-issuers, right. Um, and I think that's historically what has happened. Uh, and uniquely in the 20th century, we have the ability to make it uneconomical to counterfeit uh, paper money. Um, and, you know, that's a result of the Industrial Revolution and uh, the advances in chemistry and all this. Um, 
where now you can verify a $100 bill pretty well. Uh, and, uh, you know, they sell machines to, like, to verify $100 bills. Um, and that's, you know, that's great for the government, but that's, that's bad because what it allowed was for uh, the uh, replacement of any semblance of having any constraints on the issuer's ability to print money uh, with gold, right? Um, and now the USD has replaced gold as the global reserve currency. And that has corrupted the US political system uh, at its core. Um, and it's kind of just a, you know, there's, I think that there was uh, one, you know, the biggest original sin in the United States was slavery. Um, and then after that, uh, let's say very far after that, just so I don't get canceled, um, is the uh, second sin of uh, fiat money. And that, I, I think it's a technological inevitability, right? That this, uh, it was just going to happen this way because you can't have hard cryptography and the internet before the, you know, the technology for paper to be uh, verifiable. Um, and uh, that's just kind of a, 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 a law, I guess, of history, right? I think that if we replayed history and kind of randomized the, the start map and all of this, I think the sequence of it would be the same. That you go from a precious metal, well, you know, you go from seashells and whatever, you know, Nixabo, et cetera, uh, collectibles, um, to gold, uh, to uh, paper, uh, and then to digital gold, right? Gold 2.0. Um, and uh, you have to go through the paper phase. Now, thankfully, that phase is coming to an end, and I think that when it does come to an end, the U.S. will be able to restore uh, kind of what it was um, from a political perspective in the 19th century, which is a laissez-faire, uh, you know, decentralized, limited government, uh, and, and especially at the federal level. Now, at the state level, yeah, sure, I think that we'll still have states that are very progressive and that, uh, you know, have a lot of income redistribution and all of this, um, but I don't think that it will be the case at a federal level um, after, after Bitcoin takes over. We can put however many years we want on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, one of your, the pinned tweet that you have on your uh, Twitter account is Bitcoin is the next world reserve currency. Um, what, what would be the benefits of having Bitcoin as a reserve currency? Um, so I, you know, I would specify that I think that it's going to be a reserve currency for individuals. Um, maybe some corporations, as we've seen, you know, so far with MicroStrategy and Square. Um, but um, ultimately, I think governments will be so late to the game that they won't really be able to use Bitcoin as a reserve currency. They're going to be living... Bitcoin paycheck to Bitcoin paycheck, right, um, of begging taxpayers for Bitcoin. Um, and so uh, I don't think that it will be a government reserve currency. I think it'll be a private reserve currency where, um, you know, individuals and corporations hold large cash balances of Bitcoin. First of all, because they're incentivized to do so. They're incentivized to do so along a number of different axes. Um, Bitcoin's fundamentals of being censorship resistant, seizure resistant, permissionless, and then that crucial fundamental of being, uh, you know, scarce at 21 million Bitcoin, where if you buy one Bitcoin, you know you own a certain percentage of the fully diluted supply. Um, and that, you know, those, those make it such that it's a no-brainer to hold as much Bitcoin on your balance sheet as you can. Um, and then the question will be, 
okay, what are some positive return on invested capital, you know, positive NPV projects that we could pursue uh, where we're going to make more Bitcoin, right? And I think that those actually will exist uh, when Bitcoin reaches 100% adoption because the, the upside, you know, of, of Bitcoin uh, will, will be much more limited than it is today when it's at, you know, 0.01 adoption. <laughs> um, but, you know, at some point, everyone who wants to use Bitcoin as a reserve asset will be doing so. And um, at that point, I think that the returns on uh, all sorts of different other investments will be more attractive than just holding Bitcoin. It's a long ways out. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people when they come in to learning about Bitcoin, they get into it for the potential financial gains and they come into it with uh, high time preference. So they're looking for um, the Lambos or, you know, whatever. And uh, uh, the idea of like adoption being a slow progression. I mean, it, I've been really, I've been in it since uh, 2018, late 2017. And uh, um, the, level of adoption and growth I've seen since then has been mind blowing, but um, it's still only a $250 billion asset comparatively to like um, other assets. So yeah, uh, it is a really interesting take on it. And uh, I think the, that's one of my favorite parts about Bitcoin is the way that it changes your time preference, like the way that these four year cycles work with the halvings. And um, I mean, it's, it's a very, very different uh, thing. So one of the things that, uh, you know, going back to the topic of schools, um, one of the things that isn't taught in schools is money. I, I think nine and a half out of 10 people, you ask them what money is and they wouldn't be able to give you any sort of uh, definite, clear definition. Why, why do you think there's such a disconnect between um, those first principles and uh, um, education for normal people? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that it's, it's still a hotly debated issue in the field of monetary economics. Um, and so I don't think that there, I, I haven't seen a definitive answer to the question, I'll be honest. Um, I've seen pretty close things that I agree, you know, a lot with, um, obviously from the Austrian school, uh, but I don't think that anyone uh, has actually answered the question. Um, and I don't want to be so presumptuous as to say that I have an answer because I really, I, I don't. I have, uh, I have some, some ideas of what um, plausible definitions of money are, uh, but I haven't found the perfect one, I'll be honest. And so um, to me, I almost have to refer to the external concept of saying, well, Bitcoin is money. That's really the, the, the best definition of what money is, um, is the Bitcoin system itself uh, and, and, and the units in it. And that there isn't really any other, um, it's almost like asking, well, you know, what's what does the United States mean? You know, like what, what is its thing? It's like, well, you know, it's, it's borders. <laughs> it's the actual geographic uh, extent of this landmass. Um, and it's, uh, you know, rather than trying to have an abstract concept of it. 
Okay. That's a, that's a pretty, uh, pretty good take on it. So part of the reason why it's not taught you're, you're saying is because it is kind of an abstract, um, subjective idea. Well, uh, sort of. I mean, I think that for it to be taught, um, you know, these teachers would have to be red or orange pilled, you know, uh, <laughs> how many teachers are orange pilled? <laughs> uh, very few. Um, yeah. and, uh, so if, if they were, then I think that it would be pretty easy to just say, Hey, look, what money is, is Bitcoin, right? And you don't really, then we could talk about, okay, what are the properties of the system that um, make it money? Um, but uh, it's kind of just like a, a, a description of Bitcoin. Sure. So going off of that, one of the narratives that's really floating around Bitcoin right now is that it's more of like a store of value and investment than something, than a means of exchange. Um, do you see that changing in the near future? Uh, yeah, so I think that we have to get into the question of how does the market for monies work? Um, okay. And so, uh, you know, one, one way of thinking about money, which the Austrians um, are proponents of, and which I think is a really um, compelling, though not perfect way of looking at it, is the question of uh, indirect exchange. So uh, a money is something that in, in the course of trade um, that you're going to trade for without the intent of consuming it or of using it as an input for a production process, but rather because you're going to trade it again in the future. And so it's, um, the, it's for a different good or service. And so that's what the indirect exchange uh, means, right? Um, whereas direct exchange would be, you know, two cows for your chickens and both of us are going to eat them, right? We're not, we're not, I, I'm not taking chickens because I'm like, well, chickens are pretty liquid and I'm going to be able to trade these chickens for uh, cigarettes and, you know, work my way uh, to the final good that I want. Um, so there's indirect exchange. And I think that uh, when you have a new asset, right, that is entering into this dynamic of, um, let's let the market for uh, indirect exchange, right? Um, and so today the market for indirect exchange, it also includes real estate, right? Because there are people who buy real estate, not because they're gonna live in it or because they're gonna start a business using it, you know, but because they think they're gonna be able to resell it at a later point at a higher price. Um, and so that's just due to inflation, right? People people have, uh, have had, currently have to use non-monetary assets for indirect exchange because using a monetary asset for indirect exchange only works if you anticipate your future exchange to be in the very short term, right? Um, and so financial planners tell you don't hold more than six months worth of cash because of inflation. Um, if you did not have inflation, financial planners would say uh, hold as many years of cash that you want right? Because that's what you should do, objectively speaking, is that if you want to use, if you anticipate using cash in the future, right, in, in 10 years, then you should just hold the cash. You shouldn't go bet on the stock market, like, or, you know, go play in Vegas. You're going to need that cash in 10 years. Um, and the best way to guarantee that you will have cash in the future is to hold it into the future. 
Um, and so the argument of is Bitcoin a medium of exchange or not, to me says, well, okay, if you are thinking about it purely from the perspective of someone who is exchanging in the short term, right, in the next six months, then no, I don't think it, it is because people who hold Bitcoin are intending to exchange it in more than a year. Um, if you look at the on-chain data of, you know, hodlers, right, the hodl waves, uh, there's just a, the, the majority of coins are being held longer than a year. Um, now, you know, we can look at the data in different ways and try to exclude, you know, some supply that might be lost or whatever. But I think the point remains that, um, you know, there's not really a reason to have a view that short-term minimum exchange is more important than long-term minimum exchange. That's an arbitrary preference from the point of view of an economist. That's not a positive observation that one is better than the other, just as like, I would say like, you know, light blue sweatshirts are better than light yellow sweatshirts. Like who, who, who gives an S, right? That's just gonna be consumer preferences. And it's the same, it's the same with uh, minimum exchange and, and, and using a good of, uh, you know, for indirect exchange, whether it's in six months or 10 years or a hundred years. Um, you know, the economists shouldn't care about that. And so thus, it should not really have any impact on whether something is categorized as a money or not. Um, and that the, the store of value functionality, first of all, I think it has two different definitions that are subtly different. But um, I would say one output always stores the amount of Satoshis that it stores, right? And so like, I think Bitcoin's the perfect store of value. Now, if we look at it from a volatility perspective, I don't really think that approach makes much sense either because you can hedge the value, right? The price, sorry, you can hedge the price. So if you can hedge Bitcoin's purchasing power using derivatives and there's liquid you know, futures and options markets at this point on Bitcoin, then to say that it's a bad store of value, all that means is that your risk tolerance, first of all, um, is so low that you do need to hedge and that the cost of the insurance contracts for hedging are, um, uh, are too high for you. And so that excludes you from using Bitcoin for what you wanted to, wanted to use it, right, for. And that to me is like, that's totally fine, right? There's lots of goods and services. For example, I would like to ride a rocket to Mars. The price of doing that is too high for me, right? And so then I can't ride a rocket to Mars. So I don't really see a reason why um, you know, some people having terrible uh, risk, uh, you know, appetite uh, is a reason to ding Bitcoin's definition as money. When there's clearly lots of other people who are willing to embrace that volatility because they get returns from it. Um, and you can't predict what days the returns are going to be on, right? That's kind of the challenge of Bitcoin. Uh, and so thus, it just makes sense to look at it long term of, this is going to be a highly volatile asset, but the returns are very high. Uh, and so I'm going to hold it. And um, I think that, you know, people, there's, there's also lots of people who are able to hedge, right? We see that in terms of the volumes on CME futures and whatnot. Um, and there's also a lot of people who are able to self-insure. And so if you are cash flow positive, if you are earning money, you know, every two weeks, every month, um, you can not worry about having to liquidate your Bitcoin, right? And you can also have 
uh, one year of fiat, you know, on your balance sheet, if you're really worried about the volatility that much, I think that's irrational because you can actually borrow against your Bitcoin, right? So um, if you have, and the chances are, the unexpected cash flow that you're going to have is not going to be correlated with Bitcoin's price. So for example, let's say your, your car engine goes kaput. Why would that be correlated with Bitcoin's price, right? Odds are Bitcoin's price is going up. And so you can borrow dollars against it uh, and then repay your loan later and be ahead, right? Because the amount of interest you paid is less than the gains on Bitcoin's price. And so it's good that you didn't liquidate. Um, and really, you know, if you're cash flow positive and if you have a steady stream of income, uh, then you can start being more aggressive about how you uh, manage your cash and you can hold more Bitcoin. Um, but anyway, that's a tangent on kind of store value versus medium of exchange because I, I frankly, like I find the, the argument of like either, hey, it's only a store of value, right? Uh, to be kind of ridiculous because you have to receive the Bitcoin. Someone has to send it to you in order for you to hold it. And so it has to be operating as a medium of exchange, right? And if, for it to be a store of value. And then for it to be a medium of exchange, you have to be holding it in order to spend it. And so thus it has to be a store of value in order for be to, to, to be a medium of exchange. So um, I kind of see it as uh, there's this um, uh, metaphor or like wise story from India or whatever of, uh, blind old men feeling an elephant and trying to figure out what they're touching, right? And so they're touching the tail and they're like, oh, this is a donkey. And then they're touching the tusk and they're like, oh, this is a rock. Uh, and they're touching the tongue and they're like, oh, okay, you know, this is a lizard or whatever. And so, you know, um, it's, it, it, it's, these are all different facets of the same thing, which is that money is a unit of account, money is a unit of exchange and money is a store of value. And it is all of these things simultaneously to the same degree, I would argue. This whole idea of it's like, it's going to evolve through these different phases, I think is an abuse of language, right? What, what people mean is that Bitcoin is going to have a phase where it is rapidly increasing in its liquidity. And it, in that um, market for indirect exchanges, it is growing in its market share, right? Very rapidly. And then at some point it will have reached saturation and uh, you know, adoption will have peaked, right? And reached 100%. And so um, all along it was the same money, right? And I think that all of its properties were advancing at the same rate. I think that if you are orange pilled, you are using Bitcoin as your unit of account, right? Mm -hmm. And your store of value and your medium of exchange. If the person on the other side wants to receive Bitcoin, you can't use Bitcoin as a medium of exchange if the person on the other side doesn't want to receive Bitcoin. They're, unless, you know, they are auto dumping to an exchange or whatever, but, you know, that's kind of just a sleight of hand there. Um, and so um, I think that, you know, that's where I like BTC pay server a lot. Um, mm -hmm. But in any case, all of these properties are evolving at the same time. Uh, and I think they're all increasing for Bitcoin and the, you know, where they're at is a, a proxy measure is kind of the 250 day moving average of Bitcoin's price. Um, I think that gives you an idea of uh, where uh, Bitcoin's fundamental value as a money as a whole uh, is. Yeah, wow. There's a lot there. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the BTC pay server as well. Um, so yeah, my orange pill moment really 
where the light switch kind of flipped um, from denominating everything in dollars to denominating everything in, in Bitcoin uh, was when I was listening to a, a podcast of a guy that lives internationally um, and he was talking about wanting to be in what he coined fiat shit coins for as little time as possible. Um, one of the biggest advantages of Bitcoin as a uh, universal currency and being borderless is that you can exchange it in and out of like any other currency if you need to. So though people don't want to, some people may not want to take Bitcoin, you could go somewhere and, you know, trade it with somebody or an exchange and then into the local currency. Um, and that was like a major, major shift for me, um, especially like with all the reading that I was doing on uh, where fiat currencies are going, um, which doesn't look too positive, but yeah. Um, so yeah, um, have you looked into this, the IMF calling for a new bread and woods agreement at all? Uh, no, I try to really not pay attention to what they're up to because I just see their tweets on Twitter and it, that's enough. They're, they're ridiculous enough uh, people. And, and really like, I, I just, I, to me, it would be like, um, you know, historically there are situations where uh, local currency just gets dominated by gold. Right. And, and safety has written about these where you might be on the silver standard and uh, the silver just continuously devalues versus gold and you're pushed off of it. And so I think that um, like the people who are on the silver standard, they probably were trying to come up with all sorts of crafty solutions. Right. Where they, they're trying to peg it um, or uh, try to fix the price and uh, engage in mercantilism and, uh, you know, in intervening in the market. And to me, all of those are just, uh, you know, kind of a waste of time for them. Uh, and the faster that they would just embrace the superior money, uh, the less pain they would experience, right? The faster that mm -hmm. they just buy Bitcoin. And so to me, like, I, I think that it's a pretty good idea that I'm, I'm, I'm happy to tune out anything that comes from them about CBDCs, or New Bretton Woods, and only listen if they say, we are adding Bitcoin to our balance sheet, right? That to me would be the only signal and everything else is noise and uh, they will be wiped off of the uh, face of the planet by hyper-Bitcoinization if they don't um, you know, have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Now, what I do think will happen is that the employees who work at the IMF they're going to own Bitcoin. And I think they, they're probably going to own Bitcoin before the average uh, normie does, actually, because I think that they, you know, they're doing research on this stuff and they, um, they're, they're smart enough to figure that they should at least have some skin in the game and some exposure to Bitcoin success. Um, but the organizations themselves might end up without any Bitcoin. And so at that point, those people will just retire and will just these, these organizations will just disappear. <laughs> so there, it, you know, it, it's not like there will be any continuity to them or any follow-up on them establishing a new monetary order when you know, they just go buy, buy their citadels. Yeah, that's, that's uh, one of the most interesting uh, takes. And I heard you talk about that in another interview. Um, they, uh, 
personal incentive versus uh, the government incentive and how those two will clash. Um, and that actually really eased um, some concerns that I had personally, because there eventually there's going to be a point where there's, I mean, we're already seeing it with like KYC AML um, laws and, you know, what happened with uh, BitMEX and, you know, there, there is a coming and growing pushback against uh, Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, I, th I feel like that's a safeguard in and of itself because free markets never lose. Um, I mean, you can try and slow it down, but they'll eventually win out. Um, so yeah. Uh, so from like a societal issue standpoint, so I, I think one of the, there's really a growing uh, attitude of like the importance of government and society um, to uh, address certain issues. What, what issues do societal issues do Bit, does Bitcoin address? Yeah, so I think that it's fundamentally about a concentration of power. Um, and so power today is concentrated in, um, first of all, uh, central banks, right, that have the power to issue um, the currency. Um, but also by extension, commercial banks, which are kind of day-to-day -day creating money. Um, and so I think that uh, bankers as kind of a, a, a class, right, um, has had, have had an outsized influence on all sorts of parts of society. Um, they're influential politically, um, but they're also influential, I think, from an economic perspective, because they have all of this seniorage at their fingertips. Now, uh, I actually would question whether we can call it seniorage because um, the banking system is fairly competitive, even if it's pretty concentrated at this point. I still think it's competitive. Um, and the proof of that is that we have pretty good mobile banking. If, we, if the banking system was not competitive, we would have terrible mobile banking, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I think that it's competitive on the other side of, of lending and borrowing where, um, you know, earning net interest margin is not easy. Uh, and you are competing with a lot of other people who are also creating money. Um, so, uh, you know, when, when we have financial crises, it's because they've run out of people that they wanted to, oh, geez, okay, sorry about that phone call there. Um, uh, of people who wanna borrow money, who are actually good for it, right? And. Um, um, so that concentration of power in the banking system, we can argue about that because, um, you know, it's, it is arguably pretty competitive. But nonetheless, as a percentage of the economy, we've seen that the financial system has significantly increased. And I think that, you know, from commercial banking to investment banking to, um, you know, the stock market and the bond market, all of these things, and frankly, also then by extension, private equity, hedge funds, VCs, all of these financial intermediaries, I think, have been subsidized by the creation of new money. And that absent that subsidy, they would be a much smaller part of the economy and people holding cash um, and self-financing their own activities, right? Whether it's buying a house cash or buying a car with cash would be able to, uh, you know, avoid paying all of this interest uh, to, to these, uh, into the financial system. Um, 
And so, yeah, I think the, you know, the, the current financial system not only concentrates power, but like creates Ponzi-nomics uh, all over the place. Uh, and uh, it's, it's also that you have to trust all these other people. And we see it with like Enron and whatnot with these blowups where I really think that if people could hold cash for the long term, right, um, and were not pushed into investing in the public stock market or into uh, bonds and whatnot, that constant, or the ownership of equities would actually primarily be about insiders. So, you know, people who receive equity as compensation or people who founded the business you know, if there's no VCs, then I think that the average founder would end up with a larger, much larger percentage of their company. And the public float would be pretty small. Um, and that would just be about creating liquidity for employees who are, you know, um, are earning uh, shares and uh, being able to sell them on, on a, in a marketplace, right? And the buyers might be other employees, right, who have insider information. And um, ultimately, some retail guy who like they have no business owning the equity of a large corporation, right? Like as a rule, that seems like it would be odd that that would happen. I think it would be activist investors um, and then uh, professional investors, right? Portfolio managers who are looking for uh, differences in relative value uh, between different publicly traded companies. I don't really see a re reason why the average American should own a private or, or a small percentage of a private corporation. That doesn't make any sense to me. What they should own is a large percentage of their own company or of their own home or of their own car um, and a large cash balance, right? Of an asset that is seizure resistant, censorship resistant and actually scarce. Uh, and so it maintains its purchasing power and is incredibly liquid right, that is tradable against uh, every uh, good or service in the world. Um, and that's kind of where I, I, I think that if we get to that vision, um, then we dramatically reduce the power of finance and by extension, the power of politics because, okay, we got the Federal Reserve, right? But the other part that we're missing is the nexus between the bond market and uh, Congress deficit spending where uh, if the private uh, borrowers and commercial banks are a big part of this, commercial banks own a large amount of US treasuries, right? So mm -hmm. commercial banks lend to the government. There's a symbiotic relationship there and then commercial banks can influence the government. And, and we've seen this historically. I'm not arguing that this is currently happening right now because I actually don't think it is, where um, commercial banks will not lend to a government or to a politician, right? Um, based on political policy differences. Uh, and, and so they're able to use the ability to create money in order to influence the political system and vice versa, right? Where the political system is able to influence commercial banks. And we see this, uh, for example, um, you know, some commercial banks are censoring marijuana dispensaries or are censoring strip clubs, or are censoring adult stores, or are censoring, um, what's a right-wing thing? Firearms, gun stores, right? They get censored. Uh, and so I think that, you know, it, it, by commercial banks, where you can't open an account there because you're deemed like a high political risk. 
Um, and so this enmeshment between finance and politics, I think, creates a huge amount of concentrated power, where now everyone's fixated on who's going to be the next president, right? Because all of that power he has, or she has, in the case of Kamala Harris, who might be our next president, um, is, is tremendous, you know, and, and, and same thing with Congress, where, and the way that the uh, executive branch uh, wields that power is through the Treasury Department, through OFAC, right? Uh, so they determine, they can put sanctions on you. They can put sanctions on anyone, now uh, of foreigners, right? But uh, domestically, they can put sanctions on you by, for example, the IRS went after Tea Party groups as a political strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Not for a public policy reason. And they were caught and, you know, it was a scandal under Obama, but uh, I think that it, it just shows how um, we want government to be limited, not because we hate government, but because we know that government will get abused by whoever is in power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the interviews I did recently with uh, Sheila Weinberg from Truth and Accounting was pretty uh, mind-blowing as she just talked about how local governments, especially right now, are completely broke and are completely dependent on um, lenders uh, for money because they're unable to raise taxes because it's so unpopular to fund their various she used the city of chicago which i think is the the blueprint for not how not to run a government but uh um yeah they're completely broken and that's a huge amount of power that you as a government official are giving to the banks um and yeah i mean that I think that's one of the con major concerns with the digital um, various government digital currencies is it allows them so much more power to just shut people out and instead of having to go through these multiple steps to lean on you know payment processors or whatever to like WikiLeaks for example the way that they leaned on Visa and PayPal and you know those guys to stop servicing them and Bitcoin kept them alive. Um, I think is a really interesting story in that regard. Um, but yeah, uh, so as far as like the normal person, um, so one of the things you talked about was like the idea of buying a house cash, you know, or, or owning your own business. Those concepts are pretty uh, um, hard to grasp, I think right now, because the idea of like coming up with you know, in Tucson houses range from like a nice house ranges from like 200 to $400,000 um, or more, obviously. But um, uh, the idea of coming up with that much cash for the typical person just seems, you know, pretty ludicrous. But when you have a form of money that isn't being debased constantly, it makes it possible. Um, and yeah, what you described was really a really big uh, difference to the current system that we have right now. Um, so to address um, wh when you talk about limited government, what would, what is a limited government look like? Yeah. So I think that um, 
under the classical liberal um, view of a limited government, the first way that it is limited is that uh, it doesn't have the ability to arbitrarily consume as many resources in the economy as it wants to. Hmm. And one of the key ways it does that is by making sure that the representatives of the people, right, in a republic, um, are only able to spend what they tax and that you don't have the ability to deficit spend. And so what that means is that any spending that happens means that you have to increase taxes. And that gives the people the opportunity to vote you out if they don't like the amount that you're taxing them, right? And so um, fundamentally, um, to me, a limited government isn't a small government or a large government. It is a government that is constrained in its size to the size that the people will allow it to be, right? And so um, that's that the limitation to me is the people. Uh, that's the limiting factor. It's not um, uh, anything else because ultimately I do think that uh, you know, if we look at different ways of assigning power, uh, if we're gonna have if we're gonna have a, a monopoly on violence, um, I actually disagree with Seyfedin, uh on this, uh, and and with Hans Hermann Hoppe, I I've, I've come around to the idea um, that we can we can have um, that that actually a a sovereign that is low time preference is not necessarily better than a sovereign with high time preference. Uh, is the the way I, I'm starting to analyze the situation, um, and that to the extent that a sovereign creates bads, having a high time preference sovereign sovereign will produce fewer bads than a low time preference one, um, and we can get into some specific examples. But fundamentally, um, I I think that the reason that democracy has become so bad. Uh, is because it has no longer been limited by the budget or by the tax, right? By the direct taxation. And the way that democracy becomes unlimited in its power uh, is when it has seniorage revenue, when it has the mint, when it has nationalized the creation of money and excluded all other competitors from the market and monopolized it. Um, then it really shows its ugly face, right? Of, well, what, what is the ugly face of democracy? It's that of bread and circuses, right? Of the mob. That is the bad part of democracy. The good part of democracy is saying, hey, look, uh, we want the people to choose the most virtuous person among us um, in order to do these collective actions, right? whatever they may be, securing the border, um, or uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we, we want specific, for example, um, you know, public libraries, you know, and, and we want to coerce everyone into paying for it. Well, so I don't think we can stop the mob from doing that ultimately, right? Uh, I haven't seen any uh, technologies which allow that so far. Perhaps though, Bitcoin, by not only removing the seniorage part of it, of removing the printing press from the hands of the mob, but also increasing the cost of taxation, where because Bitcoin is seizure resistant, 
that people are able to much more easily um, do what I call civil disobedience with mm -hmm. regards to taxation, that not only do, are they able to express themselves at the ballot box, but they're also able to express themselves through illegal you know, civil disobedience, right? That's the whole point of civil disobedience is that it is illegal. But ultimately, that it is legitimate in the sense of they are protesting a tax that uh, is unconscionable, that really goes beyond what we should accept as a society, and that the mob has cr created a tax that is um, egregious and violates someone's natural rights. Um, I think that that's a plausible argument, right? And, and I think that um, Bitcoin allows the, uh, in, it, it actually makes it, it more expensive for the IRS to do its will. And mm -hmm. if it's more expensive for the IRS to do its will, that means that the, the um, equilibrium amount of taxation is lower than it otherwise would be without the seizure resistance. So if, if it's as easy as just dinging your bank account, right, which is what's going on right now, uh, garnishing your wages, um, then that means that we can have higher taxation. Now, the thing to note is that uh, dollars in small amounts are not seizure resistant, right? So it's very easy for the IRS or for others to garnish your wages or to seize your bank account. Dollars in large amounts are more seizure resistant because you can pay for lawyers that create seizure resistance, right? And uh, lawyers call this asset protection. So uh, you can uh, pay for asset protection. Uh, you can pay to create um, f uh, legal structures that are seizure resistant compared to uh, you know, what poor people have access to. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually a huge source of inequality in our commercial systems is that rich people get richer because they are able to protect their assets better than poor people. Uh, and I think that, you know, part of the explanation of inequality certainly is uh, the printing press, right, since the 1970s. But I also think part of the story is about the legal system protecting the rich and failing to protect the poor uh, quite often, where ultimately the poor are protected by their own tools. So what that means is the poor are protected by their guns rather than by the police, police system, right? Um, if, if, if you live in a hard part of town, chances are you're better off owning a firearm than begging for the police to protect you when in all likelihood the police might make things worse. Um, and then, uh, whereas if you live in a, a gated community with a private security guard, okay, you can, own a, you can own a gun, but chances are you'll never even have to use it, right? Because uh, the, the, it's so well guarded uh, that um, you know, it's not a problem. Um, and so Bitcoin actually reduces the cost of asset protection, where now you no longer have to depend on lawyers for asset protection. What you can depend on is the, the chain, right, of having a multi-sig, for example, and you could split up your multi-sig, um, you know, in whatever way that allows you to be more seizure resistant with regards to criminals, um, with regards to accidental loss, right? Uh, so, for example, crypto steel is more seizure resistant to fire than a pile of cash, right? Cash lights on fire, as we saw in the terrible burning of uh, the money in the banana stand in Arrested Development, which really showed the lack of seizure resistance of physical cash. Um, and that's something that I should comment on uh, publicly. I don't think I've ever 
this is an exclusive on your podcast right now that I'm linking uh, Arrested Development to uh, Bitcoin seizure resistance. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's a, a wormhole you just got into. Um, oh, so much to unpack in that. Yeah, I mean, that that's one of the things that, so part of my podcast is really trying to um, give normal people tools to be empowered um, and to kind of flip the script and get outside of the system. And uh, yeah, the civil disobedience is um, something that I, I found. Have you, have you seen the movie on Netflix, uh, the Chicago seven yet? Not yet. No. Um, the, the one I recently saw was about, um, Rudy Giuliani dismantling the mob in New York City. Hmm. Um, and I, I, the, I don't have the name in front of me, but it was a fascinating documentary, especially when I was thinking about how it applies to Bitcoin, because essentially the reason that they were able to do this was because they were um, able to bug homes. So they were able to put recording devices in people's homes. And so they would, they would get warrants to do this. I, I would question whether that, um, whether hard cryptography can make that impossible, right? And um, uh, today, uh, and so essentially, uh, will we see, and I'm not, I, I obviously, I don't want to engage in uh, mob-like uh, activities. <laughs> and I'm opposed to uh, the mob, although I consider the government to be um, thuggish and gangsterish uh, with its uh, shakedowns and it's, uh, yeah. you know, we can debate that. But um, I, 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 all I'm saying is that if the technology makes people more resistant to, and, and more private, right? And so more resistant to government snooping in on them. And so far it's done the opposite, right? Now, I'm sure it would actually, like it was very hard for Ross Ulbricht to run a, um, or sorry, Dread Pirate Roberts, right? Let's not presume, I, I don't know who's, who DPR is. Um, you know, he, he, he was able to do it using Tor. And these mobsters in the 80s and 90s didn't have Tor. So I wonder if with Tor and with, you know, private uh, communication that we would have a different outcome uh, in terms of the battle between Rudy Giuliani and the mobsters in New York. Um, but that's, you know, it's speculative. Uh, but maybe, maybe we'll see a resurgence of organized crime um, using cryptography. I've heard of cases of that happening. Um, you know, in, in Europe, there was a, an app that was actually, here's how the government took it down, which maybe is a counter argument to what I'm saying they were able to get all of these gangsters using an encrypted app that was owned by the government. So it wasn't actually end-to-end -end encrypted. It was the man in the middle. And they were able to bust all these guys. And so it's actually, it's gotten easier to bug these people. Um, so maybe, maybe that's the future is the government is uh, scamming people into using uh, quote-unquote end-to-end encrypted uh, chat. Which also, it kind of makes me wonder about Zcash and Monero, right? Where the IRS is putting a bounty on, uh, uh, you know, breaking Monero's anonymity. And, you know, let's say that, let's say that it's impossible, right? Um, 
you know, that's, it's kind of an argument of what do you think the odds are? Do you think the odds are that it's impossible or do you think the odds are that it's, it might be possible? And so from there, do you conduct your Monero transactions with the expectation of privacy or not? And so if you think that there is some percentage probability that the IRS will be able to break Monero's anonymity, wouldn't that be an argument to not use Monero expecting it to be private, right? Expecting it to be 100% private. And I also would argue that it's the case today that you could use Bitcoin in a way that allows you to have some degree of privacy within some percentage, right, of, of probability. And, and then we can argue about which has a bigger percentage than the other. But at the end of the day, we're not talking about a binary, right, of is this a private privacy coin or not, but rather of a spectrum of is the way I'm going to use this asset going to be private or not and by what probability? And uh, that's kind of uh, my, my, my thought there from watching this uh, documentary about Rudy Giuliani and the mob. Yeah. Another good piece on Rudy Giuliani is the new Borat movie. He had a short he, You know, yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> nowadays, I would argue that um, you should just assume everything's a setup, right? Mm-hmm. Even interviews like this, like, I kind of go in assuming, like, so, something weird could happen, yeah. and I can just sign out, right, and, and move on. And, um, like, if someone asked me for an interview where it's like a New York Times reporter, I'm like, nah, not interested. I know it's a setup. There's no New York Times reporter that is reaching out for an interview with me, or Bloomberg reporter, or even Wall Street Journal reporter, where it's actually a good faith conversation or mm-hmm. article that they're writing or that yeah. it's going to be a positive article about Bitcoin. I just know it's not going to be that. And um, the, the only exception to that is Joe Weisenthal. And I have been on his podcast, Odd Lots. And sure enough, it was not an ambush. It was not a scam. So my judgment was correct. But I, I stand by that. Um, and even like... Um, you know, yeah, so I won't, I won't name names. So um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the default approach you should have to things. And so Rudy Giuliani, like, I guess he's been doing interviews for a long time before the internet existed, before anyone could ask you for an interview, I guess. Um, and he thinks he still has power, right, in, in today's day and age. I kind of think of it as like, um, the reason Donald Trump has power is because of his Twitter account, not because he's president. <laughs> right? And, yeah. and, and people think that, and, and I'll, ha- I'll hear this about myself. People are like, oh, Pierre, you know, Bitcoin's just like an echo chamber and uh, you're just like some loud mouth, right? Okay, true, but you could say the same about the current president of the United States. And I'm not saying that I have his power, right? Or that I want to run for president or anything like that. I'm just saying that the ability to communicate to a large audience is, is power in 2020. And mm-hmm. um, I think that Rudy Giuliani in that regard, he has less power than Borat, than, or than uh, Sasha Cohen, or whatever his name is, Sasha Baron. I don't know. Yeah, but, Baron Cohen, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And so I got mixed up there. I was like, no, Baron is the son of Trump and uh, Cohen is, you know, his attorney or something. But anyway, um, yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen has more power than Rudy Giuliani today because they have a bigger audience, you know? And, and so anyway, I think Rudy is, it's time for him to just kind of retire, right? And anyone who falls for that kind of interview trap uh, they, or even Donald Trump fell for it, right? He fell for it with 60 Minutes, or he sat down with 60 Minutes. Screw 60 Minutes. Like, just talk with the American people by having a video and posting it on Twitter, right? And Trump's done that a lot. You can speak directly to people. You don't have to hold yourself hostage or find friendly interviewers like yourself, right? Like, I know you're legit, you know? Like, I can find lots of Bitcoin, you know, orange-pilled people who will talk with me about Bitcoin and not try to get me on a gotcha question about, you know, I don't know, COVID-19, like who cares? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like podcasting is a, one of the biggest growing uh, uh, sources that people use to, to gain information because it's more of a discussion rather than a quick gotcha soundbite. And that's why I really enjoy it and felt like it was important to, to do something like this rather than um, more traditional settings. I mean, it, it's pretty wild the way that like information is being disrupted and, and yeah, it's uh, um, like Peter Schiff got ambushed by 60 minutes recently too, um, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, at this point, the mainstream media is just an extension of the state, right? Mm -hmm. And um, we see that with like all the go vote stuff, uh, all of their yeah. censorship, you know, whether it's, and by the media, I don't mean the New York Times. I mean, the New York Times and Facebook, right? And Twitter and Spotify and everyone, Google right? All of these corporations, Apple, they're media corporations at this point. And, and that's why the New York Times attacks tech companies, because they're competitors. And, all, all the, and, and then calling themselves journalists, that's just a go-to-market strategy. That's just branding, right? That's not what they are. They're not journalists. The, journalists are, they, they have a completely different role. Journalists yeah. verify information. Um, these are political actors and they're extensions of the state and they are um, driving at certain policy decisions uh, and they are manifestations of political power within different factions, right? Wall Street Journal being about establishment Republicans, New York Times being about establishment Democrats, and then you've got all of the kind of, um, you know, power dynamics between Facebook uh, and they, you know, Google, is obviously an extension of the Democratic Party, right, uh, mm -hmm. of uh, Democrats. And when, when Obama was president, Google was deeply embedded in the executive branch and into the U.S., uh, even uh, Congress, right? Um, Facebook, I think, has tried to be more centrist, right, and, and please both sides, um, because ultimately Facebook wants to be its own sovereign. And I don't think that, uh, you know, Google has that same ambition. But really, you know, if I say Facebook is a kind of a, Facebook at this point in my mind is a separatist organization. It's, uh, it, it's, it's like, um, uh, who, who are other separatists? Well, you know, the, 
see. Uh, in in Spain, they have their own separatists, um, Catalonians. Um, in the U.S., I think that Texans want to kind of go their own way. But uh, it, you know, Texas Texas independence, the movement for it, is much smaller and less powerful than Facebook independence and the mo movement for Facebook's independence. And we've seen Facebook uh, influence not just in the United States, but like international policy making. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about it that way too. Yeah. I mean, the idea of the tech companies taking on roles that the state typically would have, uh, held is pretty crazy. I mean, Facebook, LibreCoin, um, having this, giving like a tech company that much control is uh, different and, and weird. Um, and, you know, one of the ideas of like the state, like going back to, to topics that you covered is that there's some accountability to the people. And a lot of these uh, private institutions don't have that same accountability. And well, so the, the reason they don't have that same accountability is because they were actually granted an immunity. Mm -hmm. That's what Section 230 is about. And basically, my, my thesis is that Without Section 230, which gives them immunity about what their users say on their platform, um, these social media companies don't scale, right? Because in order to scale, you would, ha without Section 230, you would have to be able to police what people are saying on your platform. So you would actually have to prevent people from saying things that are illegal. Um, and we can debate about what should be illegal to say or not. The bottom line is that even the most fervent libertarian agrees that fraud is uh, ought to it violates the non-aggression principle, and that even in an anarcho-capitalist society, fraud would be punishable, right? And and so you would be able to uh, legitimately punish someone and transfer wealth from them in order to compensate a victim of fraud, and. Um, Section 230 uh, removes that liability from the platform. Um, and so people can use platforms like Twitter to commit fraud. And Twitter doesn't have to prevent that from happening, even if they know about it, even if they reasonably could prevent it from happening, because yeah. they're not held liable for it. And so this is a subsidy on them that allows them to scale. If they didn't have this subsidy, then they would get, um, they would have to pay a high cost, either in lawsuits, right, of uh, getting sued for enabling fraud or uh, in having to moderate the platform. And so they, they would be very expensive to moderate the platform at scale. And so what I think we would have is far more competition uh, between smaller uh, social media platforms uh, that are able to uh, be far more uh, targeted. And so I think that you would have much fewer like broad um, platforms like Twitter and Facebook, and instead you would have far more narrow niche platforms of, that are specifically targeted to interest groups, to ideological groups. You might have like, you know, you, and you have this in the dating website realm, right? You have uh, dating for Christians, dating for Jews, dating for atheists, uh, dating for casual people, dating for people who want to get married, dating for people who are young, dating for people who are old. And so you have this natural fragmentation in the marketplace, which I think you would have in social media, 
um, if you removed this uh, broad liability protection. And you'd probably have even more fragmentation in, in the dating market as well if you remove that liability, uh, because they too, I think, are protected by Section 230. Hmm. That, that's a really, really interesting take. Um, and I would say I agree with it. Um, and definitely is pushed back against my previous thoughts on, uh, on the president's uh, um, threats of uh, repealing that. Um, initially, my thought was like, it, it would be a limitation of free speech, but the idea well, of corporations shouldn't be forced to allow free speech yeah right um and so ultimately corporations are private property owners and so if they own a supermarket i don't think they should be forced to allow a protest in their uh in their uh, parking lot right uh, like the government sh should stay out of that and if the supermarket does not want to allow protests in its parking lot because it gets in the way of their customers then the, they should be allowed to evict those people, right? And, and charge them with trespassing. And it's not a violation of free speech, even if they are peaceful protesters. To me, they are, um, they are not peaceful protesters, they are trespassers, uh, if the property owner doesn't want them to be there. Same thing with your driveway, right? And, and that's why I think roads should be privatized as well and parks and, but anyway, that's a side note. Um, the Twitter servers, the, the, the Twitter servers, and the ISP's uh, fiber optic connections are pieces of private property owned by private property owners who should be allowed to exclude people from their private property for any reason. And, um, and so Twitter should be allowed to exclude anyone from their server that they want to. Uh, and, and so that's where I think that they shouldn't be forced to uh, you know, mandate or, or they, they shouldn't be forced into allowing free speech. Um, it should be a voluntary corporate policy of theirs or not. It's kind of a product decision, right? Do you wanna allow anyone to say anything on your platform? I don't think so because ultimately your platform would just get filled with spam. Mm -hmm. So you're gonna have to censor some people. And then it's like, all right, well, do we censor political speech? For some platforms, political speech might be spam, right? So if your platform is for um, people to discuss farming equipment, uh, they are spamming your servers if they discuss politics, right? It's kind of like, okay, what? go your negative externality on the business um, because this is a business about discussing farm equipment. So mm -hmm. that's where I think that it's perfectly valid for them to, uh, to censor what their users can do. And I don't think the government should be involved in, in that decision at all. Um, and, and that conversely, um, the government shouldn't be, uh, you know, as I mentioned, providing subsidies to platforms that do uh, enforce free speech. I, I, platforms that enforce free speech should compete unequal footing with platforms that are aggressively censored. Because I don't think that there's a, a reason to think that one is better than the other. It's arbitrary. Uh, where you draw the line of what free speech is, as a private property owner, specifically, is up to you. Um, you know, I, if someone came onto my property with a bullhorn, I, 
I, you know, that's a violation of my property rights. I don't really care about their freedom of speech. You know, that's on them uh, to, to, to get their own piece of property to use their bull, <laughs> bullhorn on. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I got some thinking to do after this. Um, yeah, the, the ideas in, uh, around private property rights, I think, is really fundamental. Um, and that's another issue that I think uh, a lot of uh, people don't have a clear understanding on um, and why we have so many topics about, like, taxation and, you know, things like that, um, or minimum wage or, you know, government intervention over economies. Um, but when you line it out like that, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think it's a pretty sound argument. Um, but yeah, uh, what are, what are some things that are like, things are about to potentially get pretty crazy here in a couple of days. What are, what are some things that, uh, are giving you hope and like a bright outlook on the future? Um, I, I think that, um, I don't, I don't know that things are going to get crazy. I kind of see it's uh, two different outcomes. Um, one is Biden wins in his decisive victory, um, or, uh, it's a very close call and it goes to the Supreme court. And I think that the Supreme court, um, ultimately is going to depend on what the lawsuit is that gets to the Supreme court. And there's no way to predict that. So that's a coin toss. Um, and um, I actually, you know, people think that because Trump now has, you know, five out of four justices on the Supreme Court, um, or maybe even six out of four, depending on how you look at it, um, that the Supreme Court will side with him if it's 50 50. I don't think that's the case. I actually think that it really 100% depends on what the lawsuit is and that the court would side with Joe Biden if that's what the law says they ought to do um, based on the facts that they get in the lawsuit. Um, and that's a, that, that would be an interesting outcome because I think that that would avoid the court packing thing, right? Where Joe Biden's like, the worst outcome possible would be for the Supreme Court to side with Trump and for Biden to win anyway through some mm. other mechanism, right? I don't know. Because then that would undermine the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and that would lead to court packing. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, I ultimately, I think that U.S. institutions are pretty resilient and uh, predictions of them blowing up have always turned out to be entirely wrong mm -hmm. and uh, they're pretty lindy at this point. So um, yeah, I think that we could see riots and looting and violence, whatnot, and, you know, but not worse than recent history, let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good outlook on it. And uh, I was listening to Alex Gladstein uh, debate uh, Saifedean and that's kind of what he pointed to as well and gave me a lot of hope because there's just a lot of crazy energy out there right now. Um, but yeah, where, where can people follow your work? Uh, yeah. Pierre Richard.com or uh, on Twitter at Pierre underscore Richard. And 
I think you have a podcast as well, right? Uh, noted Bitcoin podcast, although it's been a while since uh, we've had an episode. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it was really fun having this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me on. Great questions. That was a really fun interview, and I really enjoyed it and appreciate Pierre's time. He's just really, really cool, smart dude, and uh, I look forward to seeing what he does in the future because he does have a really large impact on the world of Bitcoin, and if it's going to do what he says it's going to do, he will also have a very influential role in this world. Um, So... Yeah, um, if you like what I'm doing with the Tucson Bitcoin podcast, uh, love your support. If you do the whole like, subscribe, uh, comment, leave a review, do do all that stuff. It, it really goes a long way to help get the message out there in the community. And uh, yeah, I mean, the ultimate goal is to help people to use tools that better their lives and empower them. So. We don't have to continuously see this just like abysmal state of poverty in our community um, because it's not necessary. And we have tools today that were never accessible before. And it's really, really exciting. And it's why I do this work because, you know, there's nothing more important than fixing our society and helping those that need help. So yeah, uh, you can also support me on Patreon at uh, Tucson Blockchain. And yeah, thanks for stopping by.